Hi there, Bill. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Robin, I'm doing well, thank you. Good to join you again. Well, it's been yet another interesting world in the... Well, an interesting week, even, in the world of security. What things have you observed or notified that we're not going to be covering today that you think people should know about? I've put you, know, you on the spot. No, it's okay. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go back to something that we've said before, and that is to always value the human aspects of cybersecurity. What we continue to see is that a lot of the news that comes around is about people. So it's so incredibly important to make sure that you are educating yourself, you're educating those with whom you work, and always be on the lookout. This is a psychological aspect just as much as it is a technical aspect. Strongest asset and weakest link. But anyway, let's get started with the fun. And let's start talking about SQL and waking up Maggie. Tell us more. Of course. <laughs> so very interesting information came to light. A German cybersecurity firm called DCSO SciTech brought this to light, this interesting piece of malware. This piece of malware actually interacts with SQL and mm -hmm. basically opens up a back door to threat actors. Okay, so SQL is always been a little risky on anybody's network. For people who don't sanitize inputs, to the good old bobby tables where somebody could pass an accidental parameter dropping everything. So why is this SQL attack like or different to anything else we've seen? You know, one of the things that's very interesting about it is that the malware is actually stored as an extended stored procedure DLL. Now, for those who may not be familiar with that, I might have to explain this to some of our, our Linux and Unix colleagues. Uh, you're probably familiar with DLLs as being dynamic link libraries within the Microsoft Windows ecosystem, particularly on servers. That makes this one a little bit difficult to find, but what it essentially accomplishes is it opens up a back door and literally has a set of approximately 51 commands that can be executed using SQL calls. And these commands can be things such as uh, performing TCP redirects so that you're able to have remote control. What is perhaps most concerning is that it also performs brute force administrator logins. So essentially, Robin, you feed it a list, uh, typically a dictionary, and it will begin its process of trying to find the administrative logins into your SQL servers. Mm -hmm. So they're just trying every single permutation to try and get the keys to the castle. Exactly right. And what makes it even more insidious is, despite this research coming to light, we don't really know what the initial vector is yet. How does it get in? So we're going to continue to investigate that. And well, <laughs> generally, if you could trace the source of every single attack in the world and know the initial vector from everywhere, I think the entire security community would be a lot better informed. But the reality of life is that you can't always trace the source of origin, whether that be a security attack, a, I don't know, transmissible disease or anything else really everything else so how can Cato help you stay protected against this malicious entity robin you're absolutely right mm. we are dealing with unknowns <laughs> the key to this is having a strong next generation anti-malware solution mm -hmm. we do certainly bring that to bear here but that is going to be your your greatest line of protection particularly as you said when we don't know the vector by which this piece of malware is arriving so strong anti-malware 
Sure. I have anti-malware on my endpoints. I have anti-malware on my Windows servers at the moment. Why does Kato's anti-malware, how does it operate better than those traditional point products? You know, the fascinating thing about anti-malware is that it typically, we'll say historically speaking, was based upon signatures. And that is still very valuable because that helps us to identify malware very, very quickly. Next generation anti-malware takes that another step further. And that's really where Cato Networks is strong. Mm -hmm. It is able to analyze malware simply based upon some of the behaviors that this malware may happen to perform. We don't need specific signatures. And the great thing is we do this all on the fly. It's local. There's no need to do any kind of sandboxing. We have the ability to do that right away without you having to wait for a verdict on that malware. Ooh, it almost sounds like magic. Ooh, just things happen and you stay protected. The joys of Kato. But let's go through a worst case scenario. You aren't protected today. Somebody accidentally brute forces your SQL passwords, gets inside your secret magic castle and starts exfiltrating the secret source. What do next? What happens to our customers that have been exploited by this wake up Maggie? In cybersecurity, mm. we always talk about defense in depth, having multiple ways to protect those things that are so important to your business. In cases like that, this is where the next portion would come in and that is a robust intrusion prevention system. You see, it's very important not only to have defense in depth by layering defense strategies, you really need that converged. You really need the entire picture. So even if they are successful, if that manages to get within the environment and data begins to move, we are still able to mitigate that because we see the traffic and we're able to stop it before your data is lost. That's all good. Realistically, 100% prevention isn't really feasible from any vendor out there at all. Because that's the great thing about cyber attackers, cyber criminals, those who are posing you threats. They're smart. And the world of security is nothing but a constant cat and mouse chase. So folks will be identified. That defense in depth, having multiple layers of protection, especially if it's a managed service, helps you stay secure, helps you stay protected, and overall keeps you happy. Now You got it, and being able to manage it easily is key. We indeed. need the human element. Now, since you, you mentioned IPS, I think that might be a good segue onto the second big security incident of the week, and that will be Proxy Not Shell. Tell me more. You bet. Most folks have heard of this one simply because it is an attack on a target that is used in so many businesses, so many organizations, and that is an attack on Microsoft Exchange, particularly on-premise Microsoft Exchange. Now, mm -hmm. very interestingly here, Robin, we are not talking about a piece of malware. What we actually identified were two zero-day vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange. Mm -hmm. Now, taken by themselves, it's certainly of concern, but threat actors really came up with a way to utilize these together to really begin a, a process of compromise of the target. Uh, specifically speaking, one of the zero-day vulnerabilities was a server-side request forgery vulnerability. Mm -hmm. In other words, the threat actor had the ability to execute commands as if they were on uh, that particular server, they, they forged it and were able to then escalate their privileges. In other words, they might be able to come in as a lower level set of permissions 
but could then very quickly escalate their their permissions to do more. And then the second zero day vulnerability actually allowed a remote code execution. So if you think about that for a second, this is kind of the one two punch. First, they were able to access the system, the exchange server, escalate their privileges. And then the second punch was they could begin to execute commands. <laughs> and could they use this exploit by any chance to send emails on my behalf or to or to flag things as junk? What, what sort create, of the, the creativity of threat actors is endless, Robin. <laughs> so of course we could, right? So not only being able to take data out, but we could send emails on your behalf. And this is just this is a fantastic way to begin to build some of your own phishing abilities mm -hmm. as a threat actor and look like it's coming from a legitimate source. That's really mm -hmm. one of the keys is we, we try to educate in terms of identifying potential phishing emails, but when it comes from a legitimate source or seemingly mm -hmm. legitimate source, makes it much more difficult. Indeed, indeed. That's one of the, the, the big worries out there is once you start seeing a phishing email, the first thing that you do is always verify the sender. Are they coming from Kato Networks or are they coming from Kato Natworks? That's kind of the first. So if it's a legitimate email being sent from inside your organization, well, if you're a cybersecurity whiz, you know exactly how to get around this. However, if you are not uh, so au fait with technology, you would then have the implicit trust. And the implicit trust will lead to somebody being able to easily start moving data out or moving more malicious content inside of your perimeter. So that's all dangerous. Now, I'm a big fan of completely burning exchange to the ground and thinking email is old hat and who needs it anymore when we have other forms of asynchronous communication. But I know it's still very much a reality and necessity of the business landscape. So if you haven't patched those zero day vulnerabilities, how does Kato keep you protected? Well, first of all, there is multiple ways to patch this. Microsoft did release I believe we're up to three iterations. The third seems to be the best where they recommend either uh, rewriting a URL rule within the, the solution, or there's actually a PowerShell tool that you're able to pull down. But most to your point, Robin, if, if you don't have a robust patching program, and, and we can't stress enough the importance of that to be able to, to catch some of these things, but if you don't have that, the great news is, once again, if you have a robust IPS system, an intrusion prevention system that really takes into account URL reputation, that is going to be key to, to protecting you. Because again, although we may be able to access and you, you may find that they're in the system and they begin to move about with their commands, eventually they're going to want to execute on their objectives. And as that data tries to move to URLs with a questionable reputation, whether it be one that happens to be known or it happens to be one that was generated quickly with the domain generation algorithm. We're going to be able to identify that. We're going to be able to stop that before the real damage is done. Certainly to alert you to that presence, give you the ability to either shut the door or if you are sophisticated enough in terms of your cybersecurity, uh, begin to analyze what they're doing and hopefully pin down where the threat actor is and how they work. And sometimes just being made aware of where the threat actor is, is enough to stop a full attack. So Absolutely. as Kato sat in the middle between your users and the big wide world of the internet, 
we can start alerting. We can, and it's not just this vulnerability, is it? It's any low reputation type websites, newly registered domains, geo-blocking, whatever it needs to be. We can start to show you the visibility of your security risks. And there's risks everywhere. That's, that's what keeps it exciting. That's what keeps it fresh. Yeah, and you said something that, that's very interesting there, Robin, and, and, and something that we come across so frequently. That is being able to inspect that traffic. You know, you, you really cannot see vulnerabilities if you're not able to see into the traffic. And Cato Networks does give you that capability to look deeply into the traffic all the way at a packet level and identify exactly what's going on. Uh, we don't, we're, we're not going to be fooled by tunneling through secure protocols. <laughs> We're able to analyze that data and tell you exactly what that traffic is that's flowing through. Ah, uh, but okay. So it's very difficult to fool Cato, but other people can get quite easily fooled, such as if you're a chief information security officer. So recently the verdict was in and there was some personal fiscal responsibility for CISOs. Tell us more. You bet. So very visible breach happened recently with Uber, but this one goes back to 2016. Uh, in 2016, Uber was breached. The information did make it up to the chief security officer at the time. However, I think everybody knows that Uber is a publicly traded company. They are on the markets. And at that time, the chief security officer will leave the name out. I'm sure anybody oh, can of course, of course. use a search engine and find out. But the chief security officer did hold that information to himself. He, mm -hmm. he failed to report that publicly, uh, knowing, of course, that evidence of a breach may negatively affect stock prices. Mm -hmm. Well, this opens an entirely new can of worms. Previously, we've only focused on the actual technological implications. I'm tripping over my words a lot today. I need more caffeine. But when it comes to personal fiscal responsibility of a security incident or a breach, as far as I'm aware, this is a relatively new water. I haven't seen many high profile cases where CISOs have been held personally accountable. How did, what impact do you think this has across the wider tech space? Well, we need to be very discerning concerning this case. Mm -hmm. This was not a situation where the CSO was was convicted because of the breach. Mm -hmm. That's what's very interesting. In fact, any of the charges that were around the breach were dropped right away. The key here is the cover-up of the knowledge. And it even took another step further. Not only did the CSO attempt to conceal that knowledge from, from going public, but they actually tried to conceal the threat actors themselves. See, that's part of the problem. There's an old saying that three can keep a secret as long as two of them are dead. <laughs> and in this particular case, this CSO knew that the threat actors could also go public. So uh, he attempted to cover it up around a, a bug bounty program and so forth. But this personal accountability is very interesting because uh, once again, this was a choice that was made by the leadership. And it really does raise an interesting question, Robin, about how far up and down the chain does that accountability go? This mm -hmm. was a chief security officer, but does it go to the to the vice president? Does it go to the cybersecurity manager? Really, the key to this is openness and transparency. 
we used to always say it, document, document, document. Anytime you see anything like this, you need to make sure that it's documented, particularly if you're a publicly traded company, but I would argue as a security practitioner, you should always have that transparency and be ready to show. Mm -hmm. When it comes to just individual job security as well, let's just take the, the best practice out. Imagine you're a, a developer or you work in finance or accounting and you see data lost somewhere. You see somebody get into the system where they shouldn't. You see somebody walk behind reception and start touching a computer. Do you say anything? Now, if you don't say anything, think of the risk. Think of the implication. But what happens if you do say something and it doesn't go your way? What then? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And this really boils down to culture, Robin. You really need to understand that when it comes to cybersecurity, if you are aware of something, you are bound to say something to the right people. And could it blow back on you potentially? You know, it, it certainly could, but we have to ask ourselves, if it does blow back, is that the kind of culture to which we want to contribute our valuable IT skills? Mm -hmm. it, it really is something to think about. And this does begin to enter the realm of your moral obligation when it comes to cybersecurity. We live a digital lifestyle today. We and do. so we really are responsible for making sure that that's secure for everyone. Yeah. So we're very focused on the tech space, but there's also the physical space. Now, there, last week I was in central London and there's still signs around saying, if you see something suspicious, report it. And it's you know, not just people leaving USB sticks around. It could be an unattended backpack or something similar. So the fact that we have one CISO that has been held responsible and accountable for covering up a large incident, it does raise that good question of how far does the down the chain does it go? And currently the level of precedence, I don't think has been fully established everywhere, but this news article I'm sure has lots of people scared and lots of people reviewing the internal security and openness approaches. So luckily, if you have a corporate culture that welcomes people to share and be open and honest, like we have here at Cato, FYI, if anybody's looking for a job, we have many careers open, but if you don't have that level of openness, then you might not have a, your business might not have longevity, put it that way. <laughs> Very well. So when we talk about openness, we can't ignore the fact of open source or open accessibility. Hacking has often been a difficult thing to get into unless you're a little script kiddie and it's got even easier. Let's talk about phishing as a service and how this has escalated over the past few weeks. Do you have anything you can share with us? I certainly do, Robin. And earlier you were stumbling over your words a little bit, saying that you needed a little bit more caffeine. So we're going to give you a little <laughs> bit more caffeine here, right? So one of the items that has come up on the news blogs recently is the phishing as a service known as caffeine. So caffeine is, is remarkable in a couple different ways. Now, you really hit upon it just now. Typically speaking, a lot of folks think that hacking or, or being a threat actor involves deep, deep knowledge of some esoteric operating systems and a whole bunch of tools at your side. Uh, and and you, you act in a, a dark room and so forth. But you know, it's really not the case anymore. Being enterprise capitalists, threat actors have come up with ways to be able to sell their services, essentially, for those who, who want it. Now, caffeine is very interesting. This is a new phishing service that you can log on to. There, there's actually a front-end web portal, and it, it requires nothing more than open registration. So there's no dark phone calls that need to take place or encrypted communications. 
you literally log in, create yourself an account, and you swipe a credit card for a subscription service. In fact, the subscription service ranges anywhere uh, from $250 a month, uh, or you can uh, you can buy the service for the low, low cost of $850 for a six month period. Mm -hmm. And this service will essentially uh, allow you to create phishing attacks and deploy them. And the, the remarkable thing about this, Robin, <laughs> is that they even have a customer service department. So if you're having a little bit of trouble developing your phishing attack, well, they're just a phone call away to be able to help you. I've always found that criminals have the best customer service. After all, because that industry is 100% reputation driven. If you're seen as having a bad, rep, bad reputation, if you can't deliver, then whether you're ordering cars on demand, stolen meat from a butcher shop or a fishing attack, you know, customer service is key. <laughs> uh, so how much money have you spent on this uh, caffeine service this past week? You know, I, I haven't spent any on the caffeine service, but I did purchase an O'Reilly book, so I'm 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 sure I'm going to be able to teach myself, and I'll be good to go. Step one: always understand the fundamentals. That's right. <laughs> if you understand right. that, then everything else gets a lot easier moving forward. So, if you have somebody that has decided they have two hundred and fifty dollars spare in their pockets and they want to launch a wide phishing attack, and they go on here and start entering their Typeform data. How can you prevent against this? Because surely this is going to ratchet up the quantity of phishing attacks substantially. And we know today even simple security practitioners can get easily fooled, especially if there's a Microsoft RCE which allows insider threat attacks. So how is this sort of approach going to change the entire security landscape? Well, it, it certainly broadens the availability of these kinds of tools to threat actors. And, and bear in mind, we make a little bit of a joke about the, the small financial commitment that it takes to, to take part in this. But there really is value for the money for threat actors. They, they're given a set of templates that look legitimate. And oftentimes that's one of the first protections against phishing attacks. They also promise anti-detection and anti-analysis of, of the campaigns that are kicked off. And that may be the case in, in terms of the source. They, they do certainly try to protect the identities of the threat actors. But the good news is, provided you have, again, an intrusion prevention system that also looks at things like URL reputations and is able mm -hmm. to filter that, although the phishing campaign may be able to be launched, it's going to be caught. Certainly, as soon as the, the phishing attack lands in somebody's inbox, and they're tempted to click those URLs, those links that look so simple. An intrusion prevention system is able to prevent that based upon its reputation, as well as uh, known filters for, for bad domains. As well, typically we will see them try to launch um, an application that may live somewhere on the web that could steal credentials or the like. Having a secure web gateway is, is going to stop that, Robin, and having them all converge together in a single solution that really is your best bet because it's going to cover all those angles. Absolutely. And even in the event that somebody is not connected to the network, decides to click a link, a malicious payload is downloaded. It's now trying to talk to a command and control server or doing some registry encryption. You know, as soon as you connect back to your Kato network, that lateral movement is blocked. It's stopped, it's prevented. So if you have a contractor who's decided to download not a virus.exe onto his work machine, well, don't worry about it. When you get connected to Kato, we let you know, we prevent you, and all in all, 
we improve your overall security posture by giving you that level of visibility. That's right. So thank you, Bill. It's been a very insightful week. Hopefully we'll have a quiet security, uh, well, a series of quiet security incidents over the next few, because big security incidents are good for us, but bad for the people out there. So until next time, (laughs) thank you for today and have a great day. Thanks, Robin. You too. Thank you. Bye for now.